Are we any closer to finding out who is killing the friends of Milosevic? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 43 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Can you believe it's almost the end of October? Compared to COVID year one, year two has flashed by. But the trees here in the Shenandoah Valley have been a little slow to change colors, but they tell me you still get an eye full of color up on Skyline Drive, so maybe I'll try to head that way this weekend. One of my grandsons turned 13 on Tuesday, and the other grandson turns 13 on Saturday, so happy, happy birthdays to my two charming fellows who are now teenagers. Yikes. Today, I'll finish up reading from Welcome to Belgrade, book one of the Self-Inflicted Wounds trilogy. And for book one, I ended with a massive cliffhanger. The messages I got about that ending, I think you'll see what I mean. So let me set up the first reading a bit. Alexei has made contact with a group of Russians he suspects are the people responsible for the most recent murders of government officials and associates of Slobodan Milosevic. Things seem to be going his way. He's been invited to come meet the boss to see if he can be of assistance. However, he doesn't know that the boss has other plans for him. Namely, the boss wants Alexei dead. And when he doesn't come back from his latest excursion at the Gentleman's Club, Mai isn't worried at first because she knows he intended to make contact with the Russians. But as time goes on, the hours pass, she suspects that Perhaps he's gotten a bit too friendly with the stripper waitress he met there, Irina. But Mai soon realizes something pretty bad has happened. And for help, she goes to her police contact in Belgrade, Vojislav Ranovicic. Welcome to Belgrade. Chapter 31 Silly Dreams Mai jerked awake in a cold sweat, gasping from the aftermath of a dream. What the hell is that all about? Alexei had been trying to tell her something, but kept disappearing. She reached to her left and encountered the empty side of the bed, undisturbed, in fact. She peered at her watch on the bedside table, almost noon. That was it. She'd been dead asleep and hadn't heard Alexei come in. 
The house was stifling, and Mai stumbled to the window and opened it for some air. The bright sun made her blink. She stretched to clear her head of sleep. She recalled, when Renovicich had dropped her off with dawn a breath away, the car wasn't at the house, and the note she'd left sat untouched on the kitchen table. She hadn't given that much thought, though she had to force herself to sleep rather than start a computer search for someone named Korichnui. Alexei had probably returned at some point after her, tipsy and exhausted and simply flopped on the sofa downstairs. She dressed in sweatpants and one of Alexei's discarded singlets, which smelled faintly of him. The sofa was empty. The car wasn't parked anywhere near the house and the note was still undisturbed. The odd dream flared in her memory. All right, she thought. He's infiltrated the Russians and can't contact me yet. Or he was shacked up with the stripper waitress Irina. Mai went to the kitchen and brewed tea, pan toasting some bread while the tea steeped. After breakfast and a cool shower because the heat was becoming unbearable, she started her report to Nelson, embedded in a story for Eurocene. Exclusive interview with Jovan Ivanovsky after a foiled assassination attempt. The attic was like an oven now, and she put off her Korchniwe search to walk down to a local open-air market. There she found a 16-inch turbo floor fan. The price asked was outrageous, but she paid it. All it did was move warm air around in the attic, but it cooled her enough to spend hours at the computer, only to have nothing come up. Either this Korichniwi wasn't a known criminal, or it was an alias, or the punk last night was shitting her. She kept up the search and finally turned it over to analysts in the Vienna station when her stomach complained it was empty and her bladder that it was full. The rest of the house was now as stifling as the attic and still no sign of Alexei. She opened more windows, deciding it had to be close to 30 Celsius, unusually hot for late spring in Belgrade. No breeze stirred, but she ate some bread and cheese, fighting off a rising displeasure with Alexei. She retrieved her mobile from its charger and dialed his. After four rings, his outgoing message played, indicating Alex Burke would be happy to call back, and she waited for the tone. Your explanation better be good, she said, and hung up. She frittered the time away with more fruitless searching on the computer. Once it was full dark, she dressed for a night as a reporter. If Alexei didn't come back home tonight, she'd go to White Nights herself and pull the Russian whore off his lap. The front doorbell chimed. Ignore it, Ranovasich said. Foya, it could be work. He applied himself to the other strap of her nightgown. Work would have telephoned. The doorbell rang again. Foya, Anya said with a sigh, go send whoever it is away before the doorbell wakes up our darling brats 
and we have to put this off again. Shranya, he muttered and pulled his pants back on. Barefoot, he shuffled to the cabinet where he locked up his gun, retrieved it, and went to the front door. He lived in a decent neighborhood, but this was Belgrade. He was the kind of cop the mafia killed on a daily basis. Ever cautious, he peered through the peephole. Shranya, he muttered again and opened the door. The pretend Russian woman stood on his doorstep, her face tight, all the muscles there seeming to strain to look normal. I do not recall telling you where I lived. I need your help. Do you have any idea what time it is? About nine, I believe. She looked him over. Did I wake you? No, I was about to make love to my wife for the first time in three weeks. He expected her to flush at his bluntness. All she did was frown. I do need your help, she repeated. No more car chases, no more midnight interrogations. You asked a favor, I gave it. You kept your part of the deal, so did I. We have no more use for each other. At least he sounded confident and assertive. He knew he'd spend a long time paying for this association, whatever it was. My, my partner is missing. What do you mean missing? As in not present, not answering his mobile. For how long? Close to 48 hours. Perhaps he went to visit his wife. Something I can relate to. Why do you think he has a wife? She asked. He wears a wedding ring? Her lips pursed for a moment and she answered, He's not with her. Well, come to my office tomorrow morning. Make a report. Now, if you will excuse me, I'm going to try to convince my wife a son is in our future. Voya. Alexei was making contact with some people we suspect might have had a hand in your murders. He should have reported in hours ago. He's meticulous about protocol, so for almost two days to go by without contact means there's a problem. Renovisit sighed and glanced toward the bedroom. Anya stood in the hallway, her robe on. I am sorry, darling, he told Anya. It is work. She nodded and disappeared. Renovisic motioned Mai inside. You want coffee? he asked. She shook her head and joined him on the living room sofa. All right, he said. Tell me about these suspects. Let's take a break now and let me tell you about the new rendition of Dune. I first read Frank Herbert's Dune when I was 14 or 15 years old. And I was absolutely, as Mai would say, gobsmacked by it. I had never read any science fiction quite like it. And I thought it was the most magnificent book I'd ever read to date at that time. I've probably read it a half dozen or more times since, and I continuously find something new in it, something subtle that I overlooked before. It's just an amazing work of fiction, and I think one of the best examples of 
futuristic science fiction that I've ever read. There's incredible world building. There are characters who stick with you for the rest of your life. You remember their names as if you were acquainted with them, as if they were real. The David Lynch movie in the 1980s is kind of a cult classic now, but I was disappointed in it. And I wasn't the only one. A lot of Dune fans just didn't like it, didn't thought the didn't think the tenor of the movie was true to the book, that some of the characterizations, namely the character that Sting played, was a little over the top. Now, in the book there are there are eccentric characters, but Herbert's portrayal of them is never over the top. There was a miniseries in the year 2000, and that was only a little bit better. And frankly, I watched all of it, but I just don't remember much about it. It was that unimpressive. But the director of this latest iteration, Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve, pardon me, my French is bad today for some reason. He has wanted to make a film of Dune practically his whole directing life. He kept a book on the sets that when he directed, and actors said they could tell this was something very close to him because it was well-thumbed, it was practically falling apart, and there were places in it that were underlined. So this was a man, is a man who has been planning to make a Dune movie for a very, very long time. The costumes, the settings, the landscapes, everything about this movie is exactly how I imagined it the first time I read the book. And because Villeneuve is a fan of Dune, that doesn't surprise me. I think I think he was making it for himself because he was a fanboy. The casting choices are superb. Baron Harkonnen is scarier than I ever imagined, and he was pretty scary in the book. And, well, Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. I say no more, except be still my heart. Hans Zimmer did the score, and I swear he must have found alien musicians somewhere. The score is absolutely otherworldly, and yet there are familiar riffs in it. There's a scene when Duke Atreides arrives on Arrakis, Dune, and the soldiers are piped off the ship with bagpipes by a guy in a kilt. And this supposedly takes place in the year 10,000-something. So it, it was just a fantastic touch. The music and that little, little homage to military history. Now, I'm sure that there are fanboys and fangirls who will nitpick something in the movie that they think is not right, and therefore the whole movie is a disaster because of it. I mean, because that's just the way some fans are, and in fact, it's why 
I stopped going to cons a long time ago. There is one character who, in the book, is obviously a man. And frankly, there were very few women in the other book except some Freeman women and the Benny Gesserit. But one particular character in the book who's a kind of a major secondary character, the gender was changed. But it works. It works perfectly. And I hope the, pure, the Dune purists will be able to look past that. And this movie is only part one. It ends two hours and 35 minutes later when Paul and his mother first meet the Fremen in the desert. And I can't wait for part two. Unfortunately, there's not even a guess when that will come out. But I'm hoping I don't have too long a wait for it. I saw it in the theater and then found out it's also streaming for a short time on HBO Max. And I have HBO Max, so I watched it again the next day and availed myself of all the extras. And it has a bunch of them that are really, really good, particularly in helping somebody maybe who's never read the book to understand it. Now, I went with a person who had never read the book. She'd seen the original movie, and that was it. And she said she was able to pick up on the story and what the story was about and some of the nuances without having read the book before. So uh, don't worry about taking someone or if you are someone who's never seen it, you'll, you'll get it. It's that well done. All right. Commercial time. Welcome to Belgrade. The ebook is still 99 cents, but since yesterday, it's also been free and it will be free through Halloween, Sunday, the 31st. And this week is your last chance to get your name in contention for a signed hardcover edition of Welcome to Belgrade. All you have to do is listen to any of the four episodes this month about Welcome to Belgrade, then go to the podcast Facebook page and leave a comment about the episode. And I'll go get your name, and at the end of the month, Put it in a name randomizer from which I'll get a winner. And that's it. It's very easy. And the link to the podcast Facebook page will be in the episode description on whatever platform, podcast platform you're listening to it on. Next month, November, is the book birthday month for book two of Self-Inflicted Wounds, Dangerous Truths. It will also be 99 cents for the month of its birthday, and I'll also be giving away a signed hardcover edition of Dangerous Truths, too. Details about that to come, so I won't go into too much of it now. All right, I think that's enough of my blathering for now. Let's get back to that jaw-dropping ending of Welcome to Belgrade I mentioned. Boy, did I get messages about that. <laughs> People were like, why did you do that? What did you do? Does this mean? And fortunately, that book was the start of that flash 
publishing experience that I tried last year, publishing one book a month. So they didn't have to wait very long to find out what happened. But like I said, boy, I got messages. So now my and Renovasic have gone to White Knights, the, the Gentleman's Club, where they confirm with the bartender that Alexei had been there a couple of days ago and left with the Russians. So Renovasic decides they'll stake the place out for a while in case some of the Russians come back. But while they're waiting, he gets a call on his radio. Some patrol officers have found Alexei's car abandoned at the dockyards. Welcome to Belgrade, Chapter 35, Promises. Two young policemen stood by their car when Renovasic pulled up. They straightened to attention when they saw his uniform. Mai exited the car and looked around. About a hundred meters away, mostly hidden behind a pile of debris, was the boot of a Mercedes. From this distance, nothing looked amiss. The other policemen arrived, and they hustled to surround Renovasic. "'What have you found?' Renovasic asked the two pale patrolmen. The senior of the two, if Mai interpreted his insignia correctly, stepped forward and saluted. "'We received the briefing about the missing banker when we came on shift. Good here remembered a dock worker reported an abandoned vehicle. We decided to check it out. The license—' plate matched. He stopped, his eyes shifting away. And, Renovasic said, there is much dried blood and a smell. We notified our sergeant and he called you. All right, go back to your patrol, put in a report by morning and have your sergeant forward it to me. Yes, sir, they replied and got into their vehicle. Renovasic looked toward the car, eyes squinting. Over his shoulder to his men, he said, Stay behind us. Keep your eyes open. They were perhaps 15 meters away when Mai saw the blood. On the boot and bumpers, on the ground, trails of it near the vehicle. Renovasic was slightly ahead of her, and his hand came up and pinched his nostrils closed. Mai smelled it too. A too familiar odor of death. The last 48 hours had been unseasonably hot in Belgrade, temperatures close to 40 degrees Celsius. The car had sat exposed to the full sun for two days. With the car's windows closed, the temperature inside had likely climbed into the 50s, more than sufficient to accelerate putrefaction. Renovasic stopped and turned to her, putting himself between her and the car. Stay, I will look, he murmured. I've seen more dead bodies than you can imagine, most of them killed by Serbs. Get out of my way. Mai shouldered past him, no key in the trunk. She went to the driver's side and peered in, the condensation on the window's interior more evidence someone was rotting in the car. No key in the ignition, a handgun in the back seat, Alexei's. The smell, cloying, started a swirl of nausea in her stomach, and she clenched her teeth. No key, she said. I need a pry ball for the trunk. 
Renovisich gave a crisp order to a policeman who trotted back toward their transport, and Renovisich joined her by the boot. The policeman jogged up with the pry bar, his face screwing into a wince when he caught the smell. One quick lever, and the boot popped open, the smell rolling from it and making everyone's eyes water. Mai stepped closer. The coat was Alexei's. The bloated body was the right height. Atop the coat, a bloody knife and Alexei's shoulder holster. Blood rushed from her head and she willed herself to stay calm. Of its own volition, her hand reached. No, Renovisic said, a hand on her arm. It is evidence, my evidence. I have to see. She shrugged his hand away and grasped the coat's collar with her middle and index fingers, pulling the coat down a few inches. She closed her eyes for a moment, took a deep breath, and looked. She dropped the coat and stepped back. Not him, she said, the strain in her voice a surprise. It's not him. Renovisich flipped the coat back to show the body on its side, facing her, but the head, the head looked toward the front of the vehicle. Fits the description the doorman gave us of the Russian who went with him. Vanya, wasn't it? I have never seen a neck broken that badly. It doesn't pay to piss Alexei off, Mai murmured. She glanced around the immediate area. There, she said, pointing to a spot where the dust on the cement had been disturbed. Two people fought. She headed there, Renovisich behind her. More dried blood. One of them was badly wounded. Alexei, he's a bleeder, and there was little blood on the body in the boot. She circled the scuffed dust, careful not to step in the blood. A blood trail from here to the car, back here, back to the car again. Mai studied the overlapping gouts of blood and the picture formed in her head. He was wounded, but managed to kill the Russian. He dragged the body to the car and hid it. Mai went back to the car, eyes on the blood spatter there. He leaned against the car here, she said, pointing to bloody, smeared handprints. Eyes searching the ground around the car, she saw a blood trail leading away from it. Trying not to think about how much blood she saw, she followed it using a small flashlight from her pocket when she left behind the circle of light from a street lamp. She heard Renovisich's hesitant footsteps, and when she reached the edge of the bulkhead, he was again beside her. She shined the light right and left and spotted blood smears on a ladder going down to a lower level. Without hesitating, Mai started down. On the lower bulkhead, she shined the flashlight about, hunting for more blood, and she found a coagulated pool of it at the bulkhead's edge. She knelt there and shined the light over the side. The blood had flowed over the edge and ended abruptly where lapping water had washed it away. Another image came to her. Alexei, in shock from blood loss, leaning over to scoop water to wash his wound or cool his face, losing consciousness, falling. No, she murmured, sitting back on her haunches. No, no. 
Renovicich had followed her down, had seen what she had. His voice took on that universally false tone of soothing police used when they delivered bad news. I have men who know this river, he said. They can tell me where and when a body will surface, no matter where it went in. Mai got to her feet, knees creaking. She looked out over the black Danube. We will find him, Renovicich said, more forceful this time. There will be a body to send home to his wife. I promise you. Mai closed her eyes, shutting off her view of the killing river, and turned toward Renovicich's voice. She opened her eyes, and he took a step back from what he saw there. I am the wife, she said, and didn't want to see the blood any more. All right, that's enough for this week. And yes, Mai and Alexei, usually mostly Mai, rarely disclose their relationship to people they're working with. So needless to say, Renovasich is a bit surprised at this knowledge. Again, next month, I'll start reading from the sequel to Welcome to Belgrade, and things will all get sorted out before they get complicated again. So don't forget, go to the podcast Facebook page and comment on any of the October episodes so your name will be entered to possibly win a signed hardcover edition of Welcome to Belgrade. Oh, and go see Dune especially if you're a fan of Frank Herbert's amazing book. And don't forget, we're not rid of COVID yet, so it might be a good idea to wear a mask inside the theater, wash your hands when you leave, and make sure you're seated well away from the great unmasked. But if you do go out to the movies and maybe have a bite to eat afterwards, remember, always, always, Keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding was a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for the next episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.